You know, I don't know if there is a particular phrase or word of wisdom that my kids remember me telling them while growing up, but I remember one my dad told me, shun evil companions. He was telling me to be discriminating in my choice of friends. I think that was good advice, and I tried to choose my friends wisely. So bottom line, my dad taught me to discriminate. The basis of that discrimination, however, was not wrong. It was between good and evil. He was telling me to discern whether someone's behavior was good or evil. I was not taught to practice discrimination based on someone's color or education or economic standing. That kind of demonstration... Discrimination is wrong, and we must be very careful not to practice it. But according to Dad, we are to discriminate when picking friends. So how do we do it? How should we choose our friends? Well, obviously, we're going to be drawn to people with whom we have something in common, and we'll probably be more comfortable around people who share our values and lifestyle. I don't see anything wrong with that. I don't think that constitutes undue discrimination. Evaluating someone's moral character before you befriend them is no doubt a form of discrimination, but it's a wise thing to do. And you should give thought to the possible effects a relationship might have on you. But you must also give careful and honest consideration to your motives in deciding whether to pursue a friendship. Because it is possible to make distinctions with evil motives. Have you ever sought to develop a friendship with someone simply because you wanted to be seen with the right friends and you thought doing so might raise your standing socially or economically? Or have you ever dismissed someone because you thought they might be a social liability? Have you ever said, well, they wouldn't be comfortable around my friends or in my neighborhood or in my church? On the other hand, have you ever thought, boy, do I wish we could get them into our church, thinking perhaps they would add to our prestige or to our treasury? Discrimination, you see, is not always a black and white issue. Sometimes it is essential and is a good thing. Sometimes it's not. It can be overt prejudice where someone is excluded or even hated because of their ancestry or lack of accomplishment. Or it can be simply favoritism, partiality shown to someone because of who they are or what they have. If it is prejudice or favoritism, it's wrong. And neither should be practiced in the church. Sadly, however, both have been found in the church for nearly 2,000 years. And James is addressing it in our text for today. He begins by exposing the evil 
of discrimination. We're beginning with the second chapter of James. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. And you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? James begins by making it clear that everyone is to be treated alike in the kingdom of God. He notes that the Lord Jesus Christ is the glorious one. The rest of us are equals, brothers and sisters. And there should be no sibling rivalry or favoritism in the family of God. In fact, all class distinctions are to be lost in the church. Paul made that clear in Galatians 3, 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, such distinctions played a big role in the culture of the day, but they were to disappear in relation to Christ. As we noted in our study of Galatians, the Judaizers created a big problem in the church by making distinctions between Jewish and Gentile believers. But as recorded in Acts 15, church leaders got together and decided how to resolve that. The Roman Empire had more slaves than freemen. But Paul made it clear in Philemon that Christian masters and slaves were brothers in Christ and were to treat each other as such. And while gender confusion is a new issue, gender roles have been a source of contention throughout history. But scripture makes it clear that while roles may differ between men and women in the church, all are of equal value. James is not, however, focusing on any of those issues. His concern is discrimination between the rich and the poor, something we can all identify with and something that did cause considerable problems in the church. Now, the early church attracted more poor people than rich people. And since the poor obviously benefited from rich brothers and sisters, the rich were sometimes courted. Now, James doesn't pull any punches when confronting the church about it. He says if a man comes into a church with fine clothes and lots of bling, and a big fuss is made over him, while a poor man is being ignored, those in the church have become judges with evil motives. Now, there is obviously a time and a need for the church to make judgments. But the church must always make certain that good motives are behind all of its judgments. Judgments made with good motives seek to correct, to lift up, or to bless someone. Judgments made with evil motives seek to condemn, to put down, or to use someone. 
In the scenario James paints, the church was putting down the poor man and seeking to use the rich man. They were practicing favoritism. That kind of discrimination is evil and it's absurd. Let's read on. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? It's absurd to dismiss as unimportant, to write off as of little value someone God has chosen. You know, Jesus made a point to preach the gospel to the poor. In fact, it was prophesied that he would do so. He reached out to the poor. He welcomed them into the kingdom. But some in the church were shoving them in a corner, hoping that no one would notice they were there. Sadly, some churches do that yet today. And it's easy to do so without really thinking about it when most in a church are alike and live in a fairly isolated community. Now, some churches with a homogeneous makeup have tried to address this by bussing in the poor in the hopes of making them a part of their church. But those efforts, while admirable, are usually not very successful. Others acknowledge the poor by supporting ministries and organizations that focus on their needs. And that is certainly an important way to reach out to the poor. But I think James is telling us the most important thing we can do is make certain that when someone visits our church, they're made to feel welcome, no matter their economic situation. How dare we ignore someone whom God has chosen just because they're not like us, or we're uncomfortable around them, or we're afraid they might become a drain on our resources. No heir of the kingdom should be dishonored in the kingdom. No one should be made to feel like a second-class citizen. Doing so is absurd because it dishonors someone God has chosen. And it's absurd because if we honor the rich there's a good chance we're honoring someone who has oppressed others. Many of the rich become that way by showing no mercy to the poor, by taking advantage of them. And most who are rich think themselves to be self-made. In doing so, they blaspheme the name of Christ if they claim to belong to him while showing no mercy. And they blaspheme the name of Christ by taking credit for what he has made possible for them. It didn't make sense for the church to honor such men by showing them preferential treatment. You know, just because the world honors someone doesn't mean the church should. The world tends to look up to those who are ruthless in business, to politicians who tell the masses what they want to hear, and to celebrities who feed off man's lower nature. How foolish for the church to do likewise. And it's not only foolish, it's actually 
sinful. Let's keep reading. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Forever, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a transgressor of the law. Obviously, it's not wrong to show love to anyone. It is, in fact, fulfilling the royal law. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But showing partiality in those expressions of love is wrong. It is, in fact, sinful. Do we show the same love to the poor man that we show to the rich man? If not, we're guilty of the sin of partiality. Unless we try to minimize the sin of partiality, James went on to teach us something very important about the nature of sin. He makes it very clear that any sin at all makes us a transgressor of the law. And that breaking one point of the law makes us just as guilty as if we had broken every point of the law. It also means that in God's eyes, there is no distinction between sins. Sin is sin. You know, God's evaluation of the severity of all sin can be seen in the Ten Commandments. Included with what we think to be really big sins, such as murder and adultery, are things like coveting and taking the Lord's name in vain. Since that is true, and since discrimination is sinful, discrimination is just as sinful as murder. Again, we must not think of the law as separate statutes. The rabbis kept score and figured if they were obeying more statutes and they were disobeying, they were okay. That is not true. The law must be viewed in its entirety as a revelation of God's will. And any violation of the will of God puts a man in opposition to God. That means we must recognize the seriousness of all sin and seek the solution for all sin, even the sin of discrimination. James goes on. So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James reminds us that we have been set free from sin by the law of liberty. Our sin has been forgiven. We have been set free from the bondage to sin. And since we are sinners saved by grace, shouldn't we act like it? Shouldn't we speak and act like forgiven sinners? Shouldn't our gratitude to God for forgiving us 
be reflected in the way we treat other sinners. We've been forgiven. And God has accepted us. So we must be willing to forgive and to accept others. The mercy shown to us must be shown to others. We did not have to prove ourselves. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Grace and forgiveness were made available to us when we needed it. And we must be gracious and forgiving to others when they need it as well. In fact, James says judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. And that mercy triumphs over judgment. That means God's mercy will triumph over his judgment of us only if our mercy triumphs over our judgment of others. Let's read that again. That means God's mercy will triumph over his judgment of us only if our mercy triumphs over our judgment of others. In this context, James is indicating that mercy must triumph over the sin of discrimination. Now, Jesus once told a parable about a king who forgave a slave a huge debt that he could have never repaid. That slave, however, then refused to forgive a fellow slave a mere pittance that he owed him. The king was furious and said, Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy on you? He then handed the previously forgiven slave over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him, something the slave could never do. His refusal to show mercy brought eternal judgment back on his head. Mercy triumphs over judgment when mercy is shown to others. That means when it comes to forgiveness and acceptance and even the showing of love, we cannot discriminate against anyone. We must not refuse to show to others the same undeserved mercy that we have been shown. We receive sinful men because Christ receives sinful men. He received us. And we must do the same for others. All others. Now, there are lots of, lots of things being said today about the way we treat each other. Some of the things are helpful, some are not. Some, I think, go far astray from God's way of dealing with differences. But the scripture makes it clear how we're to treat each other. 
And if we'd focus on what we're taught in God's word, I think we could resolve some of these huge equity issues and everything else that's going on today. Let's stay in God's word. And let's acknowledge when we fall short. Let's not let sinful discrimination creep into our life or in our church. Let's treat people the way God has treated us. He's accepted us in all our sin. We must accept others in theirs. Not to approve it, not to endorse it, but to bring them into relationship with a God who can forgive their sin and give them the joy and the blessing that we've received. You know, Christ receiveth sinful men. Another hymn that you may not be real familiar with, but a hymn that says it, I think, very well. Let's sing that together.